This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 26 through chapter 6, verse 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Sisters and brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. But let one another test their own work and then their reason to boast will be in themselves alone and not in their neighbor. For each will have to bear their own load. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Matt Creasy, and I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church, and don't want to knock that down. Uh, it is my privilege to bring us the word this morning, um, but I'm going to, I feel like today is kind of a, this feels like a very serious day, and I, I'm feeling a lo- very inadequate, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll move into our passage. Father, um, I confess that it is the bent of my heart to care more about what people think of me than about your word. And I, I lay that before you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use your word, that you've called it, you've called it a sword, that it would cut through flesh and marrow and bone into our very innermost being, and it would change us, and that you would start with me. For your name's sake, amen. amen. So if you've been with us at all, over the summer, you know that we've been studying the book of Galatians. And we are actually almost at the very end. Chapter 6 is the last chapter. I know, it's sad for all of us. Uh, we've only got a couple weeks left. So what, and what we've seen is that Galatians is all about one very big topic. Somebody just yell it out. What's Galatians about? The gospel. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Dave's been with us a while. Uh, So, and what we've seen from chapters 1 to 5, Paul has been building his argument to say, okay, this is what the gospel is, and this is what it isn't. And what we've seen is that Paul has basically said, the gospel is not just another set of religious requirements that we have to obey. It's not another set of rules. It's not even a new set of just philosophical principles that we apply to our lives to feel better. Rather, what the gospel is, is a radical new operating system for all of life, right? So every other belief system, everything from way out, right-wing, radical, conservative, very moralistic religion to left-wing, irreligious, secular philosophy, and everything in between, all of them are based 
and focused on human effort. And that human effort is then focused on achieving performance-based status, right? That's what we've seen. But the gospel is not focused on our effort. It's focused on divine power, on God's work. And the status that is offered to us is not based on our performance. Rather, it was achieved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it is offered to us as a free gift. So, And then, what we talked about last week is that we as Christians have the Holy Spirit, that God himself, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of us and is the energizing power of this new operating system in our lives and that he begins to work a fruit in us, a fruit singular, not fruit plural. Remember the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness fruit. That fruit grows inside of us and he nurtures it. And it begins to change us from the inside out into the people that we were actually created to be. Okay? Now, this week, what we begin to see is that Paul basically addresses the question of, so how do we know? How do we know that we actually have this radical new operating system at work in our lives? That the Holy Spirit is growing the singular fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do we know that? Or maybe let me put it a different way. How, how can the world tell that the gospel is real? How do we look at objectively from the outside and say there is something different going on internally? Um, another way we might put it is Paul in this passage is calling us to gospel integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is when your walk matches your talk. When your outside matches your inside. That the way you behave in your everyday life is congruent with what you profess to believe, right? Actually, the word integrity is related to the word integrated. They both come from the same Latin root that means one. So to be an integrated person, to have integrity means that you're one thing. You're not, you're not duplicitous, that your life is whole. And that's what the gospel is pushing us to, isn't it? Right? So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, and if you, what's interesting about our passage, if you look at it, it's not an exhaustive list, is it? It's not like, I mean, Paul could have just gone on and on and on and on, wrote a whole other book on all the implications of what it looks like for the gospel to bear itself in our lives. He only mentions a couple things. Notice he doesn't mention anything about our personal spiritual disciplines. We talked about that last week, and those are important, and how that's one of the ways that we, we actually cultivate the fruit that the Holy Spirit's growing inside of us. But he doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about how we handle our money. And the New Testament says a lot about how Christians handle money. It also doesn't talk about how we deal with the poor. Another big topic in the New Testament. He doesn't mention anything about how we deal with the authority and the power structures in our society. What does he talk about? He talks about interpersonal relationships within the church. That fundamentally, foundationally, how do we see the gospel play itself out in our lives? The first place we're going to see it is in our relationships. And that makes sense, right? If something's going on inside of you, who are the first people they're going to find out about it? The people you're close to, right? If you're angry and stressed about something, the first people that are going to know about it are the people close to you, right? So, and Jesus said it like this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, that's what we're going to look at. Um, and the way I want to break this down is 
I see three directives. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6 through the end, I see three positives, three uh, commands where Paul says, okay, this is what it looks like for us to live with gospel integrity. And in the the last verse of chapter 5, verse 26, he gives us three negatives. I really want us to focus on the positives. I want us to look at what we're being commanded to do, what it looks like for us to have integrity. But let's just kind of keep one eye on the negatives and be, be reminded that we're tempted to go back that way. Okay? Um, so, that, so for those of you type A's who are just itching, okay, where are you going? <laughs> Give me my three points. I'm, <laughs> calm down, baby birds. I'm about to feed you. All right, here we go. We are living with gospel integrity when we are restoring, when we're bearing, and when we're testing. Restoring, bearing, testing. Okay? So, let's start with restoring. Where is that? Well, look down, chapter 6, verse 1. Sisters and brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, I don't know if you're like me, but when I first read this verse, and I heard that phrase, those of you who are spiritual, I immediately began to think in terms of hierarchy. I immediately started thinking, I said, those who are spiritual, oh, well, that's like, that's like the serious Christians, right? The, the, the super saints, those that have like achieved this higher status with God, who are in the upper echelons of Christendom, you know, like missionaries, and priests and monks and nuns and all of, you know, like professional Christians, right? Right? The problem is the Bible doesn't actually have that kind of hierarchy in it. Now, you will find hierarchy in Eastern religions. Buddhism, Hinduism, they both have this idea that we're moving towards a universal consciousness or like a nirvana, a kind of an enlightened state, and we're all at kind of different places in that progression. So there are those of us who are more enlightened. And then there are those of us who are like me, who go, enlightened? What, you mean like I got the electricity hooked up to the trailer? (laughs) Right? And you'll even find hierarchy in secular thought. You guys ever heard of something called transhumanism? It is a modern secular philosophy that basically purports that some of us are more evolved. That some of us are close to transcending, hence the name, transcending the bounds of homo sapien. And then some of us are just a bit more primitive, as we've established is me. Um, But the Bible doesn't have hierarchies like that. The Bible has one hierarchy. God, everything else. So as Christians who believe the Bible, we need to strike hierarchy from our thinking. So what does Paul mean when he says, those of you who are spiritual? Well, Paul's actually been using the word spirit over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Galatians, hasn't he? But he hasn't been using the word to refer to some vague concept or plane of existence, has he? He's been using it to refer to a person. All right, I'm going to need one of my charismatic brothers and sisters to yell it out. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Huh? <laughs> Holy Spirit! There, I heard it. There it is. There it is. Jesus is almost always the right answer, except in the case of that question. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, those of, those of you who are spiritual or those of the Holy Spirit, right? It's people who, if you remember the very last verse of, the, of our last passage last week, it was 
those of you who walking according to the Spirit. Right? All right, so who is that? All right, we're going to have a little show and tell. This is a safe space. Don't be embarrassed, okay? If you can say with all honesty, okay, let's be real here, that you've been a Christian for a while, you've been walking with Jesus for a number of years, and there are specific things in your life. Maybe it's the way you viewed yourself or the way you viewed other people. Maybe it's the way you actually treated yourself or treated other people. Or maybe it was a set of pattern of behaviors in your life. Maybe it was just the way that you interacted with God himself. But something specific that you can point to in your past and say, you know, that's something the Holy Spirit changed in my life. If that's true of you, would you raise your hand and hold it up high? Don't be shy. That's good. Keep ever just kind of look around the room. Hallelujah. There's a lot of us in here. I've got, see, I got my hand up. Okay. So don't be shy. This is good. Okay. Hands down. If you just raised your hand, you're who Paul's talking about. Okay. The Holy Spirit has been at work inside of you and not that you've arrived, not that you're perfect, not that now you have it all together, but rather in specific ways. He has brought you more in step with himself than you used to be. You are more now who you are going to be in glory than you used to be. Amen? Okay, by the way, the big theological term we like to use for that process is sanctification. Sanctification. So, the question that we have to ask ourselves, all of us that raised our hands, is did we earn the presence of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work that he's brought into our lives? That's, yeah, I'm actually concerned that I didn't hear a louder no. (laughs) No! Absolutely not. Paul himself in the book of Galatians says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? The, The parenthetical statement underneath that is, duh, by faith. Right? The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a gift that we could not get on our own. It was bought with the precious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, on our behalf. Amen? And like we established last week, the sanctifying work, that's not in our control. We don't control it at all. He does it in his way, according to his timing, and according to his will. And so what God is asking us to do in this passage through the Apostle Paul is to share that gift with each other. And how do we do that? We restore. Now, that's an interesting word because Paul, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say we correct. He doesn't say we critique. He doesn't say we criticize. He says restore. Why is that important? Well, restoration implies relationship, doesn't it? Because restoration is a process. And you go through a long process with people that you are in relationship with. You don't have to know somebody in order to criticize them, do you? Right? I mean, we do that. We drive by, criticize all the time, right? We're like over there. Your hair is stupid. Your taste in music is abysmal. And your political views are ruining the fabric of this country. Send. Right? We do that. Right? That's, but to restore somebody, you have to know them. You have to be with them. Right? I mean... That's, it implies a process. Now, if, let's back up a minute for, to our list of negatives in verse 26. Do you see the middle one? Provoking one another. 
In Greek, that word, provoking, literally means to call out. As in, challenge somebody to a fight. Okay? Who does that? Who stands at a distance, who doesn't, doesn't stand to like get to know you, but stands at a distance, calls you out, criticizes you? Who does that? Your enemies do that. Don't they? People who are not for you, who don't want what's good for you, people who are against you, they do that. And when we act like enemies of each other, we aren't living with gospel integrity. What we are being called to do is to be friends. And when I say friends, I actually mean Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27 says this, the wounds of a friend are faithful, but an enemy multiplies kisses. A true biblical friend will tell you the thing about yourself that you don't want to hear but you need to hear. And they will risk you getting upset and getting angry and they will suffer through that period of time where things are just really awkward between the two of you and things are uncomfortable. And why are they willing to go through all that? Because they love you and they care more about what is good for you than about their own comfort. Right? Sounds a lot like somebody we know. And we, so we are being called to be friends to one another. And so we restore, and as Paul says, we do it gently. Why are we being gentle? Why are we doing it in a spirit of gentleness? Because the end goal is not to hurt each other and make each other feel like garbage. The end goal is restoration. That, that word restore, actually, in the Greek, is the word they would use for, like, resetting a bone. We're healing each other, Right? So we're gentle. And Paul also says we have to keep watch lest we become tempted. Tempted towards what? Tempted to forgetting that there is no hierarchy in the church. There are no super saints. There is no upper echelon of Christendom. This is a level playing field. We were all dead in our sins until he had mercy on us. We have all been washed by the same blood of Jesus. And we all have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. Right? And you know what? If you raised your hand, I bet you are know from experience that tomorrow it might be you that needs to be restored. It might very well be me. Right? We are not living with gospel integrity when we act like enemies. And we stand at a distance and we criticize each other. But we are living with gospel integrity when we act like friends who lovingly, gently, humbly restore each other. All right, what about bearing? Well, that's verse two. Look down with me again, verse two. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so if you've been with us, you'll know that Paul has been talking a lot about the law, right? Uh, Because the Galatians, if you remember, they had become really fixated on the law, particularly the ceremonial laws, the circumcision, dietary laws, and uh, all the festivals and things like that. And so, and Paul, in referring to the law, hasn't been using very positive language. He's actually been speaking of the law in very negative terms, right? Earlier he said, 
those that seek to be justified by works of the law are under a curse. Not very positive. Uh, those that are under the law are children of slavery. Also not very nice. But now all of a sudden he goes, but if you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. And it goes up. Is Paul saying that, okay, it's just, it's just the Old Testament law. That's, that's bad. We don't do that anymore. All those stuff that God gave to the people at Mount Sinai, that's old news. It's pejorative. We, we don't, don't bother. If you want to be justified before God, just obey the law of Christ. Is that what he's saying? Well, the problem with that is that would really run against the grain of everything that Paul's been saying. Because remember, it's a whole new operating system, not based on our effort, right? So what seems way more likely is that Paul is being rhetorical, right? He's basically saying to the Galatians, okay, you want to fixate on a law? Fixate on this law. And don't think law like, okay, here are the requirements that you need to get in. Think like the law of gravity. Do you need to obey the laws of gravity before you're allowed to live on planet Earth? No, but when you're here, the law of gravity is at work, and it behooves you to live your life in accordance with the law of gravity, <laughs> or you get into trouble, right? It kind of holds everything down. In a similar way, the law of Christ is a principle at work in the Christian life that holds everything down, okay? What's that principle? What's that law? I think Paul actually says it best in another letter, in the letter to the Philippians. I'm just going to read it because I think it just he's more eloquent than me. All right, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's like held, held on to. Right? But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus set aside all of his rights and his privileges as equal in the Godhead. Not because he had to. There wasn't a gun to his back. Not because somebody was forcing him or there was some sort of obligation on his part. And not because it was fair. But simply because of the overflow of love that he had received from all eternity from God the Father, he set his rights and privileges down in order to serve us, to bear the burden of our sin that we could not carry on our own. And on the other end, on the other side of that, he found glory. But we are tempted to think that it works the other way. Go back again to verse 26 in our list of negatives. The very first one, conceited. That word in the Greek is actually a compound word. It's two words squished together. The word empty, the word glory. Empty glory. You see, we're tempted to think that glory comes when we achieve something great for ourselves and for our sake, don't we? It's literally woven into the American narrative, 
right? Literally in our governmental documents, it says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is just is kind of a synonym for glory. Glory means weightiness, right? So we think if I work hard and I believe in myself and I really focus and I don't let other people's problems weigh me down, and I don't listen to the naysayers and I just do, I'm gonna do me, I'm gonna do my thing, I'm gonna work hard, that I will achieve my dreams, which is another way of saying that I will be happy, I will be fulfilled, I will be important, I will find glory, right? Okay, I want, I want you all to look at me. Look up for your notes, just look me right in the face. I need you to hear this. I'm not saying this in order to be edgy or crass. I'm saying this in the, the most theological sense. That is a goddamned lie. It is a lie. Our Savior has shown us that glory comes when we set our rights and our privileges down in order to serve. When we bear each other's burdens, when we make each other's problems our own, we are emulating what Jesus did for us. And actually, that's where we will find glory, where we will find weightiness and substance and fulfillment. And, you know, I think that's very relevant right now. Why, why are we as Christians involved in what's going on with the racial disparity in our country? Why, why, do, why should we care? There are, there are sisters and brothers in Christ, and their problem's our problem. And we set our rights and our privileges down, not because we have to, not because there's a gun to our back, not because it's fair, but because Jesus did it for us. And actually, we will find glory on the other side. We are not living with gospel integrity when we seek to exercise our right to gain glory through achieving something great for ourselves and for our own sake. But we are living with gospel integrity when we set our rights and our privileges down in order to serve each other and bear one another's burdens. Now, I also want to say this. The specifics of what it looks like to bear each other's burdens, that's a long conversation. Okay? So I'm going to commission, I'm going to challenge all of you as a church. Can we, this week, one-on-one, -on -one, in community group, in small groups, can we have this conversation? Like, specifically, what does it look like for us to bear each other's burdens? Right? And let me give us a couple of, like, Things to start, right? One, it says bear, meaning carry, not fix each other's problems. Where do we carry each other's burdens to? The same place Jesus did, the cross, the one place where burdens can actually be laid down. And number two, we can't carry burdens we don't know about. And I know for some of us in the room, the idea of talking about your burden, the thing that you're probably most embarrassed about, feels like death. And I would ask you, not because you have to, not because there's a gun to your back, but for the sake of the one who was ultimately vulnerable on the cross, would you let us carry that with you? 
Okay, we've seen restoring, we've seen bearing. Let's look at testing. That starts in verse 3. Here we go. For if anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. But let each one test their own work, and then their reason to boast will be in themselves alone and not in their neighbor. For each will have to bear their own load. Is anybody else kind of going, hold up, Paul, Paul, which is it, bro? Are we bearing each other's burdens or are we bearing our own load? Make up your mind, right? Am I the only one? I'm alone. Okay, that's fine. Is he being contradictory on purpose? What's Paul doing? Well, Paul's no dummy. Paul knows the bent of the human heart, that our hearts are tricksy little hobbitses. Right? You see, the problem is we hear bear one another's burdens, restore one another in gentleness, right? And we go, okay, yeah, that's good. And then we immediately begin to look around the room. And we begin to compare ourselves to each other. And we start to think, you know, I've restored a couple of people, and gently I might add, And I'm bearing quite a few burdens. In fact, I think I'm bearing more than my fair share. And Stella over here, excuse me, I'm going to use you, Stella. I'm going to embarrass you. Not really. She's just the example here. Stella over here is not bearing her fair share. I don't think she's bearing any burdens at all. Why isn't she carrying her fair share? In fact, I think I'm bearing more burdens than everybody in this place. Right? What would these sorry saps do without me around here to bear all the burdens? How come nobody bears my burdens? We immediately turn the church into a competition. We start thinking, okay, you really, at the end of the day, there's two kinds of people, winners and losers, right? How do you know you're a winner? You compare yourself to the people around you. And if you have more, if you do more, if you be more, if you, some, you, have, you, know, you have to have some kind of standard to judge everybody by. And if you end up on the upper end of that standard, you win. And they lose. And you can feel superior to all of the losers. But do you know what the problem with competition? Look again in verse 26, the last of the three negatives. Competition always leads to envy. Do you know Why? Because no matter how much you have, no matter what you can do, no matter who you are, you will always find somebody who has more, does more, bees more. And you will feel envious because now they're the winner and you're the loser. But when we think that way, Paul says we are deceiving ourselves. Because the church isn't a competition. The church is a community. There aren't winners and losers in a community, right? If you think that you are a winner, you are thinking that you are something that you are not. And Paul doesn't say it explicitly here in Galatians, but it is definitely clear in other places in the New Testament. We can deceive ourselves the other way. You can deceive yourself by thinking that you're a loser, that you're nothing when you're something. Because how does community work? Well, community says... If you have something, we all have it. 
If you do something, you don't do it for yourself alone. You do it for all of us. If you are something, it is to the benefit of the entire community. Right? And in communities, everybody has a place. And everybody has a role to fill. Right? That's, you notice how Paul says, uh, your reason to boast will be in yourself and not in your neighbor? Does that, does that sound confusing to you? What, what, what is he saying? He's saying that you don't get in a community, you don't get to brag that you're not somebody else. You only get to say whether or not you fulfilled your role as you were supposed to. Right? Because here, what does the gospel tell us? Everyone, everyone, everyone has a place at God's table. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your job or lack thereof. It doesn't matter your mental health, your physical health, your appearance. It doesn't matter what you have in your house or don't have in your house. It doesn't matter if you have a house. If your faith is in Jesus, you have an equal status and standing in God's community. And that means he's given you a role. He's given you a place. Because Jesus didn't die for generic Christians. Jesus didn't die for like, okay, I need Christian A over here and just B and you just kind of like just stick somebody in that slot. No, 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 no. Jesus called you specifically and individually and personally. Jesus died for you, Stella. Jesus died for you, Nicole. Jesus died for you, Rachel. Jesus died for you, Dave. And he calls you specifically and he has given you a role to fill. And so you t we test ourselves to see where do I fit in the family of faith? What's my role? In another letter, Paul actually uses the metaphor of a body, a human body, and says we, the church, are the body of Christ. Right? Some of us are hands or fingers or toes. Some of us are eyes or ears. Some of us are gallbladders. I'm probably the gallbladder, right? You need all of the parts of the body. If you cut off any part of your body, your whole body has lost a piece of itself, right? But the problem comes in when we start judging all of the body parts by one body part standard. The eye starts going, boy, None of these parts can see two inches in front of themselves. They must be losers. And what's worse is when we do that, sometimes the hand goes, I can't see two inches in front of myself. I must be a loser. But don't you see, you don't get to brag about what you're not. You only get to brag about, were you faithful to the place that Jesus bought for you with his life? He's given you a very specific calling and when we compare and we compete with one another, we are not living with gospel integrity. But we are living with gospel integrity when we test ourselves and we ask ourselves the question, what are my gifts? What are my weaknesses? Because we all have them. You know, It's a reason the hand can't see it two inches in front of itself. It has the eyes for that, right? What are the networks, the resources, the connections, the things in your life that God has given you in order to serve the, his community, right? 
So let's back up one point for just a second, back to bearing each other's burdens. I think one example for us to do this is we can help each other with this. We can bear the burden of helping each other ask this question because we live in a culture that trains us how to be critics. We are being discipled constantly in criticism. Just watch the news for like 10 minutes. Go on Facebook. We are experts in everything that's wrong with the world and all of the problems and the people who are to blame, right? But when we are living with gospel integrity, we become experts in one another's gifts. And we act like friends who take the time and the energy to look for and identify and name one another's gifts. To say, these are gifts that God has given you and I'm really grateful for them. And I want to see more of them in your life. Can we do that for one another? Can we bear that burden with each other? We are not living with gospel integrity when we act like enemies who stand at a distance and criticize each other. But we are living with gospel integrity when we act like friends who lovingly, gently, humbly restore each other. We are not living with gospel integrity when we seek to gain glory for ourselves by achieving something great. We are living with gospel integrity when we set our rights and our privileges down in order to serve each other and to bear one another's burdens. And we are not living with gospel integrity when we compare and we compete. But we are living with gospel integrity when we remember that everyone has a place and everyone has a role. How are you feeling right now? Anybody feeling like tired? I see some droopy eyes over there. I, I, I see you. <laughs> Anybody feeling like, oh man, okay, yeah, I gotta start. What are my gifts? I gotta go think about what are my gifts? And I gotta help, I gotta help other people figure out what their gifts are. And oh man, you know, I gotta bear some burdens. I mean, you know, I, got, I know some people in here got burdens and I gotta help them bear it. And oh yeah, I gotta like help restore. I know some people in here that need restoring, but before I do that, Jesus did say I have to take the log out of my own eye before I deal with the speck. So I gotta, <sighs> you tired? You know why we're tired? Because we are so prone to forget what I said at the beginning. The gospel is not powered by our effort. The gospel is powered by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember a little bit ago I just said that Paul calls us the body of Christ? Do you, you know what, else, what the other thing that we call the body of Christ That, that bread, that's the body of Christ. And we take that every week here at Central Western Church. And the reason we do that is because when we take this meal together in a mysterious and supernatural way, we don't talk a lot about supernatural powers in Presbyterian circles, and that's to our detriment. Supernaturally, when we take this meal together, it strengthens our unity and our love. And here's the reason why. Jesus was the only human in history who was truly, perfectly integrated, who was whole. And he was disintegrated on the cross so that we could become integrated and restored 
to our Father. Jesus was the ultimate friend who went through the ultimate discomfort for our ultimate good so that we could be restored. The burden of our sin was literally killing us. And Jesus carried that burden to the cross and let it crush him. Jesus, with his very life, bought a place for us at his table and has given us equal standing and a role to fill in his kingdom. And when we take this meal, we literally taste it. We smell it. We ingest that reality. We're not just reminded in our brains. We are literally in a physical, spiritual, mysterious way. We partake of that power and it produces love. It strengthens our unity with one another and with our Savior. That's why we take this meal every single week because we desperately need it. And the world needs us to partake of this superpower. Amen? I'm going to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you that you have given us divine power to be your church in a broken and hurting world. And I pray in your name, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen our love for one another and that we would begin to embody the, this gospel that we proclaim in Central West End Church. We need your help. We need you. We need you. We need you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.